the Vietnam War and the push for US involvement was a result of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. A lie. The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? Welcome to Going Underground, I'm Afshan Ratansi. We're outside the Ecuadorian Embassy in central London. As the Tories try to convince us into bombing Syria to save it, we're going to speak to the world's most wanted publisher, the founder of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, under siege from UK police at a cost of millions of pounds to the UK taxpayer. The WikiLeaks files has just been published and it paints a picture of US destabilization of the lives of billions of people right around the world. Ashton Ratanzi uh, from Going Underground is a preview of an interview with Julian Assange. And I, that's there because that's, that's our guest today, just him. Uh, he's a brilliant guy, he's a great journalist, and, and the, the show is just like, there's nothing like it. Going Underground, get, go online, get 900 shows. I thought it was 890, but it's 900 shows right now going underground and it's it's like it's it moves it's educational and it's entertaining uh and so you you you, you would just like wow this is great i can watch this all day long you can watch 900 of the past episodes so we, we're, we're we're doing this entire show um uh with uh, mr Matanzi. um and i'm randy critical randy critical live on the fly this is assange countdown to freedom um i um before we go into him, I, I want to play this clip, which I've played, I think, about 80% of, of the shows, but I, I, I just can't say it enough. What is going on with Julian Assange? This is Kafka-esque, you call it. Uh, it it's a uh, it's a persecution. He is Joseph K. This, Bill Kunzer talked about this, what's going on now with Julian Assange. He talked about this back in uh, 1969 or 70, 71, after the, uh, the uh, conspiracy uh, trial in Chicago. Let me play this. And that's the terrible myth of organized society, that everything that's done through the established system is legal. And that word has a powerful psychological impact. It makes people believe that there is an order to life and an order to a system, and that a person that goes through this order and is convicted has gotten all that is due him. 
and therefore society can turn its conscience off and look to other things and other times. And that's the terrible thing about these past trials, is that they have this aura of legitimacy, this aura of legality. I suspect that better men than the world has known and more of them have gone to their death through a legal system than through all the illegalities in the history of man. Six million people in Europe during the Third Reich, legal. Sacco Vanzetti, quite legal. The Haymarket defendants, legal. The hundreds of rape trials throughout the South where black men were condemned to death, all legal. Jesus, legal. Socrates, legal. And that is the kaleidoscopic nature of what we live through here and in other places. Because all tyrants learn that it is far better to do this thing through some semblance of legality than to do it without that pretense. So there you go. There's, uh, that's it. That's exactly what is going on. That's from a, a documentary, by the way, uh, by Emily and Sarah Kunstler called Disturbing the Universe. Get that film. It's like the best. It was his birthday the other day, and um, it had been 101, and certainly is needed. Uh, so, um, we'll, we'll like get right into uh, Afshin, uh, really sit back. You're going to have a, a great time. He is one of the most interesting, uh, individuals I've ever interviewed. Uh, we'll be right back after this, uh, beautiful, uh, uh, music by Nina Simone. Ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money. Ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweaters, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no love, ain't got no faith. I ain't got no culture, ain't got no mother, ain't got no father, ain't got no brother. Ain't got no children, ain't got no aunts, ain't got no uncles, ain't got no love, ain't got no mind. I ain't got no country, ain't got no schooling, ain't got no friends, ain't got no nothing. This is Randy Credico, Assange, Countdown to Freedom, uh, episode 33. And uh, as I uh, promised, we are now being joined by 
the host of my favorite show in the world. It really is. And uh, the show is called Going Underground, and the host is Afshin Batanzi. Hey, uh, welcome back, and it's good to see you this time. Yeah, Randy. Ask me anything you want. I, I will. We're, it's a tough time. Uh, we are. Are, are you like in semi-lockdown yourself there in London? You know, ever since I spoke to you on the first uh, time I was on the uh, on your show, uh, it's been nonstop. So there's been no lockdown in the sense that we, you know, the team has been working at home and two days in the studio uh, to to record the show. But the work hasn't stopped, and arguably, uh, the work shouldn't stop at a time like this, right? Right. You got a lot yeah. of things going on. Uh, a lot of globe, but we'll be talking about a lot of those issues. Um, but um, I'm asking like between uh, days, Monday, uh, Wednesdays, and Saturday, uh, where, when your shows are aired, uh, you're there the days before actually like doing production work. Is that it? And the weekends, all yeah. the books to read, huh? <laughs> but what's it like in the neighborhood though? I mean, do you go out to uh, restaurants, uh, pubs? I mean, do you have any- That's all been completely shut down, completely. Oh, Utterly being shut down. But you, you, you must cook yourself. You look like uh, someone that likes to cook. Um, not so sure about that, really. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they have deliveries. <laughs> I, I, I like to cook myself. I, I mean, there is a serious point here, of course, that actually I'm speaking to you from a place in a sort of gentrified part of a, one of the poorest places maybe in Europe uh, in terms of projects around here. And uh, obviously, coronavirus has affected the most vulnerable communities far differently, uh, depending on how much money you have and, uh, and what class you are. So clearly, uh, the journalist class, um, you know, I don't think they quite understand the impact it's had. Uh, well, where I'm speaking to you from, just about a mile away where the food banks are. Right. Same thing uh, here. Uh, and by the way, my buddy Max Blumenthal, who you know, he lives in an area that's relatively poor, uh, but he has a very nice house in an area in D.C. that's relatively poor. So I'm going to have to ask him uh, what the impact of Corona is in his neighborhood. Um, so what, by the way, is the response right now? How, how is the British, the Boris Johnson government um, dealing with the coronavirus? Because, you know, England is in pretty bad shape, or the UK is in pretty bad shape, one of the top four or five countries in the world. Yeah, this is, um, this is interesting, isn't it? Uh, which countries did worst, and how the media has given uh, ideas about which countries have done worst to the masses. Because I sometimes have to correct members of my own team when they say, your country, Trump's the United States, is the worst in the world. Is it? really the worst in the world? Because per capita, Britain is the worst G7 country, G8 country, G20 country per capita. In fact, Britain, Boris Johnson's Britain, has the worst number of coronavirus deaths per capita in the world bar Belgium, and a few very tiny countries where the per capita ratio is, of course, exaggerated because they have such a small population. So, uh, I'm surprised, maybe because Donald Trump is such an ally of Boris Johnson, he doesn't want to go on about how, hey, he's the greatest president because it could have been really bad. If you take the per capita ratio and extrapolate in the United States, you'd have had way more than 100,000 
120,000. You know, and uh, it's the the infection rate is is skyrocketing at, at this point. And I don't know. You can blame the president. You can blame the governor of California and New York. You definitely can blame the uh, governor of uh, New York, and that's uh, Andrew Cuomo. Your rival Cuomo. You don't yeah. you, you don't think he managed to do that well? <laughs> because as I say. Over in this country, when he was giving those daily press conferences, they said, Cuomo, he's the man. He's going to run against the president. This is the most popular man in the United States. They were building him up here. Right. Well, you know what the problem is? The problem is, is that the New York State press, he really knows how to wine and dine them and then not pay for the tap because I've gone out with him a few times and I always got stuck with the bill. Uh, so he goes out with these guys. He knows how to romance them and they do not ask him tough questions. He would never do your show because you would bury the guy, definitely. So the perception of Andrew Cuomo, uh, I don't know what it's like now in, in uh, Europe or in the UK, uh, but uh, a lot of people have been hoodwinked and fooled because he's gaslighted the entire country with this false narrative that somehow uh, he came to the rescue, even though he lit the fire in New York and then came out with a fire hose and brought it down and he spiked in the ball. But I guess things started to change. I'm not sure he's even giving those daily press conferences. In all these cases, and I know we're going to talk about uh, other examples of this uh, uh, relationship between journalists and those in power, it's not working so well now the death toll and the infection rates are hitting New York City, is it? No, it, uh, it really isn't. And, and this, it's a prime example uh, in both New York City and New York State how close the press works with uh, the powers that be. Um, is that the same? Do you feel it's the same? <laughs> it's a stupid question. Oh, there in the UK that most of the press is aligned with the uh, powers that be? I mean, it's to be expected, I suppose, that the, the most major outlets, the state-mandated BBC uh, here, where I spend most of my broadcasting life, it has to be said, before the Iraq war. I mean, uh, of course there are cozy relationships because when I was there, the Downing Street would ring you up and say, you won't get the guest on that you want on Friday if you don't do the story we're telling you to do on Thursday. But more alarming are the people that don't have any, they're not, they're not gonna get anywhere near power and still manage to be sycophantic to power even though they don't stand a chance of getting a minister on or a top politician as a guest, they'll still do the government's bidding and go along with the, for the ride. Maybe in some kind of crazy hope that they'll be accepted and they'll be brought into the establishment they crave so much. I mean, this is a, it's an extraordinary set of circumstances, isn't it? Perhaps it's yeah. always been, and it's just been, uh, as John Pilger has been on your show, often says, perhaps it's just worse now. I think so. And by the way, that... Um uh, the war uh, you don't see is a, uh, a very good um, a primer on how the uh, press works with the powers that be going way back to the creation of BBC uh, during the First World War, uh, I believe. Uh, so that's a, um, you've interviewed him too uh, many times. And, you know, we were playing, planning this because I always play excerpts of John Pilcher, but we're going to play a little excerpt here well, we understand something about government attitudes 
and so-called policies towards the crisis caused by the coronavirus when we look at the terrible suffering of Julian Assange. You know, a few weeks ago at a bail hearing, uh, a magistrate refused to give this man bail. He has a lung condition. He is a perfect candidate, if you like, for, for uh, 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 falling victim to a coronavirus, which is, which is ravaging through Britain's prisons. They're not telling us the real figures. Like so much, there's so much lying going on about this, just simply on a humanitarian basis. The fact that Assange's name is not on the rather short list of prisoners who are being released temporarily on humanitarian grounds is an outrage. All right, so... Um, Neat, neatly done. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you about John. Let's go ahead. Uh, he's uh, one of the few that never sold out, but has uh, made 62, 63 uh, films. He's made a living. Uh, what makes him so special that he's been able to navigate through the uh, censorship uh, of, uh, of, of journalists? And, uh, uh, it's obviously because he's Australian. No, I don't know. I mean, the idea that uh, he's a, I'm even able to give him a call, let alone him being on my show. I mean, a young Afshin Ritansi could never have imagined ever knowing John Pilger. He was an inspiration to every journalist. I think what alarms John, perhaps, is that uh, journalists he probably despises for their sycophancy and their uh, stenography. They, too, love John Pilger. So what happens is everyone says, yeah, he's the inspiration. He was the greatest uh, journalist uh, to come out of Fleet Street in, in Britain on foreign affairs to illuminate all the things governments were hiding. But now he's gone off the boil. Well, no, <laughs> John Pilger is the same John Pilger. But those same journalists who were inspired to take up careers, they themselves obviously have changed by doing journalism. So it's, it's quite horrific. I mean, I suppose one should joke with John and say, it's his fault that the media is as bad as it is because we, he is the one who has inspired so many of the people in the media, at the BBC, wherever, CNN. Uh, to take up journalism in the first place. And they claim to have read his books, which is even more alarming, because I'm not sure how anyone could read any of John Pilger's many books, let alone watch his films and come out of it thinking, yeah, the, what the government's telling us about what they're doing in this uh, arena, it could be social policy, it could be educational policy, it could be health policy, it could be foreign policy. We should believe the government. Bizarre. Well, um... We're doing a tribute to John Pilger right, right now. We may as well. Uh, that book, New Rulers of the World, I recently uh, read again. And uh, you're right. Anybody uh, that uh, reads his stuff, would, uh, you would think, would be inspired to uh, follow the same uh, you know, path and uh, be uh, honest, be serious, and do the work. But it's not easy. It's, it's not easy to make a living doing that. You know what I mean? I suppose that's it. These people would rather make a living, keep their mouths shut, and uh, live a upper middle class life 
for the rest of their lives. Look at people on MSNBC. Ari Melber used to be uh, much more uh, progressive and so did uh, Chris Hayes, much more progressive. They've certainly uh, put the uh, blinkers on or put the blinders on or just put a gag on and they do not go uh, anywhere near what, where they should, where they would have if they had gone down the path like Pilger today. Yeah, I think there's a temptation to say, oh, these people never fully understood it. Maybe some of them, and this goes against Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent in some ways, maybe some of them, it is financially personal, and they know in their heart of hearts what they are doing is uh, drinking the Kool-Aid from uh, the State Department or, uh, or the White House or Downing Street here. Yeah, I guess bullet points, uh, basically. They're I, I forgot who said that, that they're getting bullet point uh, handouts from the State Department. Uh, most Could well be Cy Hirsch. Who's it could be Cy Hirsch. And by the way, you know, I love Cy Hirsch. And we are talking with Afshin Vertanzi, the host of my favorite show, It Is Going Underground, on Monday, Wednesdays, and Saturday on RT. Yeah, we're, we're going to, why not? Let's play this. Uh, clips. We just talked about John Pilger, another great uh, journalist that uh, I think has never sold out. And that is Cy Hirsch. Here's an interview with him. I, I forgot what year, but uh, here's a, a short clip. We have a big special forces community that are active, particularly in Africa in a lot of places. I think the public knows very little about it. I don't think this, our, my president has been briefed on any of it. I don't think he would, he's not interested in it or he doesn't know about it. I know there's concern about some people uh, in the military and high up in the military and in, in uh, of, of my government in Washington of that What are these guys doing? Who's in control? There's a lack of control in among the special forces uh, They've just gotten and uh, many of them are driven uh, With the idea that they are in a crusade that they're 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 the Knights of Malta fighting the infidels in the 14th century or 13th century I mean, It's really crazy stuff and so I don't think when I hear the military, the Special Operations Command say about Mali, here's what happened, four guys died, how? I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just think there's probably much more to the story. I think there's much more to our presence there. But it's very hard to get to that stuff. What'd you think of that? It was amazing to have Cy on our show. I have to say, it does take persuasion to get him on because he's a great journalist who obviously doesn't see the value of doing interviews for himself about himself and his work. Although he brought out this amazing autobiography of his life as a crime reporter before those amazing, terrifying scoops about uh, My Lai and uh, uh, the Vietnam War, let alone Abu Ghraib and so many other scoops. He obviously thinks, I'm a journalist. I'm not here to sell myself. I'm supposed to uh, be deep underground trying to get my sources uh, desperately trying to get them to stand up stories that I'm hearing. You know, I, 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 I was at the, um, at the uh, Sam Adams Award uh, this year and uh, two years ago, and uh, Cy Hirsch uh, received the award from Ray McGovern and that crew. And he was so sharp. He really, he really is still very sharp, but he, I think he got the bums rush from the New York Times because he used to give them special reports and he said that they're not accepting my material anymore. What does that say about the New York Times? I mean, absolutely astonishing. <clears throat> As you say, he uh, 
he's not lost anything. Maybe it's the tennis. Plays a lot of tennis in D.C., as far as I understand it. Yes. And um, I think he invited me once, but it was at 7 in the morning. So if you're going to meet people in D.C. late at night, how are you going to make tennis with Sai Rush in the morning? Anyway, he was there printing some of the, uh, writing some of the most amazing scoops about lies coming from NATO nation power centers. And suddenly, his pieces are not being uh, published. Even I found it a bit difficult to believe. I mean, you imagine someone on the desk at the New York Times or the Washington Post saying, yes, I, you know, your byline isn't going to sell newspapers. I yeah. think he, he ended up publishing a lot of what he did on Syria, particularly the chemical weapons allegations made by uh, governments uh, in NATO nations that were involved in supporting uh, arguably ISIS, Daesh and uh, Al-Qaeda in Syria. Um, he ended up having to publish them in the London Review books. Well, Syria has been a, uh, a big uh, topic of uh, going underground. You've uh, interviewed Assad. Uh, you've uh, done a lot of stories. In fact, uh, since this is Assange's countdown to freedom, I've got to get into uh, Julian. Speaking of uh, journalists that have principles, uh, here's an, uh, an interview you did with him, uh, I think in 2016 or 15, where you actually uh, talk about Syria, and he goes into uh, Cablegate a little bit. That's right. If our Syria chapter goes back to 2006. There's a very important cable in 2006 from Ambassador Roebuck, uh, stationed in Damascus. And he writes back um, discussing a plan for the overthrow um, of um, the Assad uh, government in Syria. And that plan is not, well, we should, you know, support the opposition uh, and so on through better, better media planning and so on. Uh, it's, it's to use uh, a number of different factors to create paranoia uh, within the Syrian government, to push it to overreact, uh, to make it fear that uh, there's a coup, uh, to use uh, its maneuvers against Islamic extremists against it. So when Syria says, we have a problem with Islamic extremists crossing over the border with Iraq uh, and we're taking actions against them to take this information and make it uh, make uh, the Syrian government look weak, uh, the fact that it is dealing with Islamic um, extremists at all. Um, and then most seriously uh, to foster tensions between Shia, Shia, Shiites and Sunnis. Uh, in particular, take rumors uh, which they know to be false and say in the cable uh, they know to be false or exaggerations uh, and promote them that Iran is trying to convert poor Sunnis uh, and to work uh, with Saudi uh, and Egypt uh, to foster that perception in order to make it harder uh, for Iran to have influence uh, and also harder for the government to have influence in the population. What do you think of that? How many times did you interview him? I mean, it's difficult always to see Julian on camera knowing that he is, you know, I know you know Niels Meltzer, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. And I mean, just the other week he was on Going Underground telling us about torture. The fact I'm not that far from where he, he is being tortured, according to the UN, in a maximum prison where people have, uh, at least one person has died of coronavirus. And, uh, and you were there at the court hearing and there's another one scheduled always different that's what you first think when you think of Julian Assange and how he's being uh, persecuted by uh, the British authorities here. 
nobody's interviewed Assange. Uh, maybe maybe a Pilger has. I'm not sure, but as many times as you have. I mean, like eight or nine times uh, from the uh, outset yeah. of uh, going underground. Yeah, amazingly unselfish with his time. I mean, although obviously uh, the interviews, most of them were conducted in the Ecuadorian embassy where he had uh, been granted political asylum by Rafael Correa's Ecuadorian government before, of course, the Ecuadorian uh, government fell. And uh, so, yeah, when you interview him, you get him all to yourself. He did give interviews to mainstream media as well. They did much shorter interviews and just spent their time saying to him, oh, what about the sex? Get out of the embassy if you're really innocent. Um, obviously, I use the time differently to, to uh, learn so much uh, about uh, not only his information, but, but how much he uh, was able to analyze all these papers put together. He really understands the geopolitical context of the cables that uh, WikiLeaks received. And I think some of that comes through in those interviews. Yeah, you know, I was really astounded because I just watched it uh, this morning uh, about his awareness of being able to analyze, have so much in his head. In fact, all of your interviews are very profound. I, I, was, I was blessed to have him on three times because he really is a great interview. And uh, you have him for 30, 45 minutes. You, you, you want him for another couple of hours because he is so intelligent, so brilliant. And I know he's a big fan of your show, uh, because we talked about you uh, right after that interview you did, I think the very, one of the very last ones you did uh, with him, which is just prior to him either being cut off um, in, uh, I think it was March of uh, 2018, you got in there just prior to that. And he and I had a conversation about it. Really, Because of course, as one has to remember, uh, the uh, government of Ecuador was alleged to have uh, been involved in a deal for Manta Bay in Ecuador to uh, put a CIA station there. And uh, in return was the persecution of, of Julian Assange. Yeah. It's, uh, it, uh, it's coming up again in September, as you said, when I, when I met you, which is two days prior to the, uh, the onset of, of that, uh, that trial. I um I played um, as you saw um, it's not a trial it's a hearing it's an extradition hearing but I you know I you well, saw the video a show trial according to the United Nations the United Nations all right let me um, let me play I mean I played earlier as you saw uh, in my preamble uh, uh, Bill Kunstler just after the uh, Chicago seven uh, trial Chicago seven Chicago eight. Uh, talking about uh, that trial and uh, other trials. Uh, and so uh, it was just his birthday. And he's kind of like a godfather to me, you know. I, I was very close with Bill. What did you uh, make of uh, that uh, two-minute uh, piece from uh, the movie Disturbing the Universe by his two children? You know? Yeah, I mean, it. it uh, those words obviously will last forever, arguably. The way that power uses the law to, uh, to hide illegality, to enact illegality. It's very moving with the people that he obviously defends, defended. I mean, we had Angela Davis actually on the show the, the other week talking about Black Lives Matters, uh, Black Lives Matter, and of course, uh, Kunstler defended the, the Black Panthers. Um, it is uh, appalling the way law acts to uh, protect power. 
uh, rather than what it's supposed to do, arguably. In fact, we have pretty important lawyers on the program from time to time, human rights lawyers. And uh, I end up, you know, slightly infuriated going, oh, you know, the International Criminal Court, they're never going to put someone from the United States in, uh, in the ICC, in The Hague. I know uh, the United States hasn't signed, uh, Obama never signed ICC uh, admission. But, you know, uh, Britain has just said that it's going to start selling arms to Saudi Arabia again. It's the world's worst humanitarian crisis, 21 million facing uh, human uh, catastrophe. No one from here is going to go to the ICC for selling the, the bombs and the warplanes. And I think that's what Kunstler is getting at. Uh, maybe it's obliquely a criticism of the International Criminal Court and uh, International Human Rights Law. Well, you know what he's talking, also he's talking about that, you know, power will put people on trial. They'll put them on trial. People that they, it's already been uh, predetermined that they're going to be convicted, right? But they put you on trial there and, uh, and they go through the process. You know, someone like Assange right now, uh, let's go uh, people like Eugene Debs, uh, Joe Hill, uh, Emma Goldman, all these people in the past who have been uh, put on trial and convicted. Uh, he talks about uh, all of the rape cases, uh, people who uh, were convicted in the South uh, that were not guilty, but they give you a trial anyway. So is that what's going on in the Assange case? Is this just they're going through the motions uh, just to make it look like uh, he's getting a fair trial? I think so. And and so does the UN Special Rapporteur Niels Meltzer. It, it, is, it is terrifying that that's, uh, that's the case. I mean, uh, Kunstler was also making the point, which is the most alarming point, that more people are more convicted. Uh, the, the wrongful convictions are greater than all the other convictions. The deaths are greater. Where you're speaking to me from, Randy, as we often say on our show, is a country where more people are in prison right now per capita than uh, in Stalin's Soviet Union or Mao's yep. China. Right. It's, Three million uh, people in prison in this country, 25% of the world's uh, prison population. Louisiana, which has uh, per capita the most of any country, including the US, uh, in prison. They have a place called the farm there in Angola. Well, it's, it's, it is slavery. It is like the, you know, antebellum South, you know. Uh, but of course, another thing about journalism is they don't inhabit the, uh, the journalists don't inhabit those kinds of milieus. So you don't, they're never going to understand statistics like that or be conscious of it, or it's just something that doesn't, doesn't uh, correspond with their reality. So I suppose when they hear Vanessa Baretza, the, uh, what is she, a magistrate, a judge? an operative from the British secret intelligence. I don't know whether you met her after, after your visit to Belmarsh prison. I mean, how does she go there, sit there, suicide over this? And uh, well, you were in the courtroom, you could see what had happened to Julian Assange. Yeah, well, uh, all I know is she, uh, she scolded me uh, because I stood up. She said, sit down up there. That was the only communication I had with her, her telling me to sit down. Um, but uh, she, it really was, it's a very scary uh, atmosphere, the way she runs that courtroom. Uh, and it's almost like she's insensitive, uh, impervious to any kind of uh, compassion. 
at all. Uh, I've seen a lot of judges uh, in my lifetime because I've, I've, I've witnessed a lot of trials. I've gone to a lot of prisons, uh, but she was really something uh, very, uh, something very evil about her. I mean, you can't say it because uh, I don't no, think you of course not. But I mean, I think I think what's obvious is if the if the lawyers representing arguably the U.S. security state in the courtroom are appealing to this magistrate, hey, don't go too far. This could harm our case because if you go that far, Spanish Inquisition style, right. the case won't go forward. So please don't be too harsh. I mean, that's testament enough, isn't it? Right. Well, I saw those three gentlemen uh, floating around. I don't know where they're, uh, you know, I don't know who would go to law school and then, uh, you know, go to law school. I think this is like, Hippocratic oath when it comes to law that they go to law school, come out, and they really commit uh, malpractice by using their legal skills to try to frame Julian Assange. Uh, you know, they'll all say that they're only, it's either a conveyor belt situation or they fell into student debt, isn't it? You meet these lawyers who have these highfalutin dreams and then. They go, I'll just do a bit of corporate law to pay off the student debt. And before you know it, before you know it, they're uh, defending the U.S. security state, uh, uh, defending de facto war crimes of the murder of Reuters journalists and uh, the murder of so many other people against uh, the most famous publisher in the world, Julian Assange. Most famous and really one of uh, the greatest uh, daring, uh, heroic uh, journalists. I, I, I want you... Um, I, I want to play this because uh, you uh, mentioned uh, Nils Melzer, who you've interviewed a number of times. This goes back just prior to the trial where he uh, kind of predicted what was going to happen. Uh, and this is an inter interview back in February on going underground with Nils Melzer. We're hearing from uh, people from the Labour Party, pretty mainstream, now coming on board uh, to support uh, Julian Assange. Is what uh, you have been saying since your report into uh, the alleged persecution of Julian Assange becoming more mainstream now? I think that's a fair assessment, yes. I, I'm actually surprised to see, compared to last June, which is uh, about a month after my visit when I tried to place an op-ed on the International Day uh, in support of the, uh, the victims of torture, uh, in the mainstream press around the world, I was unable to place an op-ed demasking the torture of Julian Assange after having visited and examined him with medical experts. I contacted the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, uh, the uh, Australian mainstream media, the British mainstream media. It was impossible to place it. Today, what we're seeing is really that the mainstream press starts to realize through publications in alternative media that they probably got it wrong. And so they get more interested in discovering the truth about the story. So uh, he's quite a guy, isn't he, Melzer? I have to say, under Antonio Guterres, whatever you think of the UN, the special rapporteurs, many of them have been very, very impressive. I mean, we've had the one on poverty coming to Britain, explaining how uh, the policy of austerity was a kind of, I mean, reading between the lines of Philip Olson's report, mass murder through austerity uh, in terms of the increase in inequality. And then you have Niels Meltzer, who uh, really is championing the case of uh, Julian Assange uh, 
amazingly, magnificently. And of course, he does so many other cases. I mean, he talks about Saudi Arabia, he talks about all these other places in the world, but just because uh, the UN headquarters is in New York City, it doesn't, he, he doesn't uh, shy away from supporting uh, uh, justice when it comes to Julian Assange and the natural process of justice. And he doesn't shy away from accusing uh, the United States, Britain, Sweden, Ecuador, uh, the Guardian newspaper, uh, the media here, much of the media here are participating in torture. Melza definitely has been like, uh, it said John Brown was a comet. Melville referred to John Brown, someone that comes around every hundred years or uh, something of that nature. And, and, I, and I would say in this movement here to, uh, in support of Assange, he's been kind of a meteor, I think, a meteor or a comet. It's just like, wow, where did that person come from? Because Which is why he's then ignored by the big mainstream media television and radio programs, despite being a UN special rapporteur. That's just amazing that he has been totally shut off. Uh, and, you know, there's been three or four reports. There was somebody in 2017 when they, say that, when they said that Assange is being um, illegally detained and should be uh, compensated for uh, what they've done to him. And uh, they, the, the Brits just ignore it. How could they just ignore it? Who, who do you think, I ask everyone this, is really ultimately pulling the strings and calling his shots uh, in uh, the UK in this uh, persecution of Julian Assange and I mean, ignoring all of these. As a journalist, we really try not to come up with mass conspiracy theories of someone pulling the, uh, the strings. I mean, I, you know, that, I think what makes journalism great is an understanding of structural power, of how power feeds into power, how uh, there are echo chambers. But you're right. With this case, and you were in that courtroom, there must be someone telling that judge this is what the case is about. There must be, and you know, we've had Jeffrey Robertson QC on our show, worked with them all, Clooney, before she arguably changed after her marriage to uh, the actor, George Clooney. We've had lots of top lawyers, and they all say they can't, this is ridiculous. This is, this is obviously a travesty of justice. So who is pulling the strings? Well, whoever they are, they've done it magnificently well. The fake sex crime uh, allegations that the, press just ate up. Um, they just wanted, uh, you know, that story to then discredit. It, it just, it was perfectly done. And of course, uh, this is a playbook that's been used in countries all over the world when it comes to color revolutions, not about individuals like Julian Assange. Uh, we know it is used, uh, has been used. In fact, we're, we're interviewing someone uh, soon, um, a guy who's written a book about uh, the importance of the uh, overthrow of the Sukarno government in Indonesia, where a million people were killed, thanks to uh, your friends in the CIA and the security state in the United States. Um, you know, these are these color revolutions, these ideas of uh, changing the media, these are tricks that, I don't know, to me and you, they seem a bit obvious now, but yes. they don't seem obvious to uh, middle class journalists uh, working the newsrooms of the empire. I think John uh, Pilger uh, did a film on the Suharto uh, coup in Indonesia. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, he's done, he's done a lot on, on uh, Cambodia. Uh, he's been in Nicaragua. He's done a wonderful, uh, back in 1980, uh, he did a great documentary, which you can get on his website. I mean, it, it really is that, and I know I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, getting back to Pilger, but that's what we do here. Um, but his, his filmography, going back to Vietnam, and going through Nicaragua, going through Cambodia, uh, going up to now with China, becoming more on China, uh, it, it's very educational. If, if you are locked down, have your kids watch these movies so they get a proper education. But again, you can understand why someone like John Pilger would be so fascinated by Julian Assange because WikiLeaks involved every country in the world. It attacked every country in the world in the sense that these were secrets uh, from government. Uh, some of the best ones, obviously, the diplomatic uh, cables to the U.S. State Department. But they involved every country in the world because of the U.S. empire. And so they shed light on all these different facets of certainly countries that say John Pilger or Cy Hirsch and others. These are the countries they were interested in. But there are some countries people may never have heard of. At last, there are some kind of glimmers of light uh, that have been shrouded in darkness by our uh, security agencies, uh, so often the uh, uh, military-industrial complex in NATO countries. Yes, uh, we are talking with uh, Abshin Ratanzi, Randy Credico, Randy Credico, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, you, um, Speaking of historians, that great series, you had somebody on that I love, and that's Oliver Stone, and we, we want to play a little clip of uh, this interview with Oliver Stone. RT has uh, always been responsible, and uh, they make very clear about their facts, it seems to me, and they show evidence, filmic evidence, so it's obviously, a, maybe you're a threat. They consider you propagandistic, but I wouldn't, when I read the this London papers, I wonder who's propagandistic here. It seems that it's a media war, but it's really a shame that the truth has been sacrificed. The, uh, the British people are not getting the news unless you allow other points of view. Al Jazeera, France 24 comes to mind, RT comes to mind. Listen to the news. If, you wanna, if you're going to create enemies and say you have enemies, then you should know your enemy. I've always held to that principle. That's why I interviewed Castro, I interviewed Chavez. Uh, I'm interviewing Putin, um, going back to finish that documentary next year. So, uh, no, it's important to know who you're talking to and have a rep respect for the uh, multinational, uh, the multipolar point of view. So, uh, that was a pretty big catch getting him. Was he, I guess he was in London because they're sitting across with him, unless you went out to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, he was in a fancy London hotel. He he's going to come on the show soon, so I can't say anything against him. But, uh, yeah, the question I wanted to ask, I'm not sure it made the final cut, was uh, in Salvador, which I love, that film yes. of the U.S. action in Salvador, because it's about journalism. There, there's one kind of line that I thought was a bit iffy, where uh, uh, the main character says, you're as bad as each other, which I thought for a second is equating the FSLN Sandinistas with the with the U.S. death spots. But I never got round to asking it. It would be too complicated to get round to it anyway. And he's made so many other brilliant films, hasn't he? Right, right. 
Right. You know, I think that one was about Edward Snowden. He made a film about Snowden. Oh, that's 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 what it's all about. But yeah. he also mentions Assange. He's been a, a supporter of Assange. By the way, it was the FM Ellen in that movie. F is Ellen was a Nick Isa. Alexandra Coburn gave me yeah, a Yeah, El Salvador. Yes. Uh, Alexandra Coburn gave me a button. FMLN that uh, way back in 1985-86. I spent a lot of time in Nicaragua. It's a huge supporter. Right. What do you think is going on there right now uh, in Nicaragua? You know, we also had Bianca Jagger on our show. Oh yeah. my goodness. Now, uh, the thing is... Oh, I didn't uh, see that. The thing is, you've got to remember that when uh, you were in Nicaragua, I think already there were all sorts of child uh, sex allegations coming out about Ortega, which were denied and then subsequently came back. And in the past few years, we've had allegations, if we leave that to one side, because then Ortega won uh, enormous democratic victories, much to the chagrin of Washington. And then in the recent years, we've been hearing about human rights violations in Nicaragua. Now, uh, you know, you're going to know more than me, given that you were there uh, during the uh, death squad time. Uh, you know, which side are you on when it comes to Nicaragua? Seems to me that Ortega is backing those countries that want democracy against what Britain, the European Union, and the United States want in Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, and uh, who knows how many other uh, countries in your uh, backyard. It's, it's very difficult uh, because you're right, the smears, in fact, the person that made the allegation was the uh, wife of Alejandro Vendagna. Uh, when I was there, he was the uh, spokesperson. Uh, he went to Harvard uh, for Miguel Descoto, and he was always on Nightline, and he was really articulate. And I used to cook for him when I was down there. I was there so many years. I, he'd come over, and then he had a falling out. They've all had a falling out, uh, with the exception of Bayardo Arce and some of the um, uh, others that have been around uh, who were actually fighting up in the country. But, you know, it, for me, it's a very sticky situation because I have friends that support uh, uh, Daniel Ortega, and I have friends that hate me for even saying that yeah. I I should say so. Bianca Jagger and her foundation are completely opposed to, she is Nicaraguan, completely uh, opposed to Ortega and says that uh, somehow you can have a nuanced line here that is simultaneously uh, against U.S. imperialism, but also against uh, Ortega. But, um, you know, uh, th these issues often come into play geopolitically, don't they? You don't have to be a supporter of Bashar al-Assad to uh, oppose uh, the aerial bombardment of uh, Syria by Britain and the United States and France. Well, what's going to happen here is like, you know, Pompeo, a lot of these people are basically on the same page as Pompeo because he'd like to overthrow uh, the Sandinista government uh, at this point. So, um, so I, think, I think a lot of people think that is a kind of litmus test, uh, Pompeo being a, being a pretty good litmus test as to, uh, he used to be John Bolton, but I suppose, I don't know if you've been looking at his book, but you know, uh, anywhere where Pompeo wants to complain about human rights, uh, you know, Pompeo, the man after all, when he was head of the CIA, who said that WikiLeaks, like it was some uh, super comic, uh, Marvel comic, um, smush type <laughs> organization, is a hostile intelligence agency when it's just a publisher 
trying desperately to reveal things to the public. Anything Pompeo says, arguably, uh, you know, is going to be um, harmful. Yeah, yeah. And, and listen, he's very close to the Saudi government, uh, uh, you know, MBS. Uh, he loves MBS, uh, and uh, he, uh, I think, found a vehicle to circumvent any kind of ban on arming uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the destruction, the mayhem, the genocide. Let's be, let's be honest, it's genocide in, in Yemen. And I know Yemen has been, we go off on a tangent, uh, something that you, like Syria, you have focused on, on going underground. Uh, what is your take on uh, the current situation there? I mean, it's, it's appalling. We had people on the ground speaking to us from Yemen in the past two, three, four years. Uh, there are brave, even former BBC journalists like Martin Bell from UNICEF. Now he's a UNICEF ambassador. He spoke off script and said, look, this is Saudi. Because of course, the big thing about NGOs and when you interview UN NGOs or Oxfam or any of these ones, they, they can't be political. It's as if, it's a bit like what you're saying about Kunstler in terms of international law. These are, these are bipartisan, these, these war crimes, these genocides, they're somehow different to politics. But of course, Martin Bell actually on our show, it's on our YouTube channel, he went, no, of course it's the Saudis. And as I say, there was a court action here by the campaign against the arms trade. Uh, they're currently uh, figuring out what to do because they successfully stopped Britain from selling the warplanes, the training of our, by RAF pilots of these Saudi uh, planes that are, have been killing children. And uh, as I say, the, the war obviously threatening tens of millions of people. But back to Pompeo, he's doing a good job with Trump, isn't he? Because Trump said he was an isolationist when he was running for president. Pompeo must really know how to uh, uh, pull uh, Trump around his little finger. Yeah, are, are you uh, fearful that something might uh, happen in uh, Venezuela? In that interview with Julian Assange um, in 2015, 2016, uh, he said he goes right into it. For the last 10 years, the U.S. has tried to destabilize uh, Venezuela. What is your forecast? Uh, is it ominous? Um. I mean, I know our friend uh, Max, uh, uh, Max has actually been there more recently than both of us. I should say, I used to live in Venezuela ahead of uh, Chavez, the Chavez revolution, met Chavez, uh, weirdly in New York. Um, I think, uh, I, according to Max Blumenthal, it seems pretty strong. Nothing the United States can do uh, will win against the people of Venezuela. Seems to be the slightly hopeful, but I think realistic view and uh, we saw the ridiculous bay of piglets uh, somehow they've forgotten about that haven't they in the new york times and washington post they still remember the bay of pigs under jfk they have forgotten the trump bay of piglets where where mercenaries were hired by the u.s government was it was it the u.s government to uh, overthrow the democratically elected government of nicolas maduro in caracas right exactly by the way uh, there's a court ruling in, uh, in London uh, that uh, denied uh, gold that belongs to uh, the Venezuelan people. Uh, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the Bank of England is over after the courts in this country. We were talking about courts and Julian Assange. There was that. So Britain seems to be sanctioning torture 
to most of the world, that will be how it's seen, the global south. And now everyone knows, do not store money or gold or assets with the Bank of England. You cannot trust it. The courts are politicized. The Bank of England is politicized. And, uh, you know, this man, Juan Guaido, who hasn't even ever run for the presidency of Venezuela, he's got all the money. And during coronavirus, Venezuela needs that money urgently for medical supplies. That's not how the British court system sees it, not how the Bank of England sees it, not how the British government sees it. Money can be stolen, it appears, from whomever, whenever, from any country, uh, whatever Washington says, whatever geopolitical context there is, it's over uh, this country for that kind of asset uh, deposits. And of course, there's been a lot of criticism of Hugo Chavez and Maduro for ever thinking they could deposit money in London. Yeah, I don't know why they ever did. Uh, but um, look, Assange went there uh, seeking a refuge, thinking that, you know, you, you have this image of, of the UK. Uh, you have this image there that it, it's some kind of democracy. But it's like what Craig Murray said at that church, at St. Pancras Church. Uh, and you look at where all of the money came from from slave owners, people in the slave trade, to build that church. He says it's kind of like a microcosm of the UK. It looks great, you know, from the outside, but when you dig in, you know, it's pretty abhorrent. And why does it look so great? Again, because of media impressions and cultural impressions, because it has to be said, novels, literature, film, they help to create these impressions. All these aspects of what it is to be a human being create mythologies about where is a good place, where is not a good place. I was actually asking a Hong Kong protester about what he thought of this limited residency plan Britain is offering to Hong Kong citizens. And uh, I was saying, well, you know, on, the, on one level, why would, why would anyone want to come to a country which illegally invaded uh, countries in the Middle East, displacing, wounding, or killing tens of millions of people? And actually, on a different level, if there are 14 million people in poverty in this country, if there are uh, extraordinary statistics of numbers of children who are one paycheck away from malnutrition in this country, where's this Downton Abbey impression coming from? I, I want to uh, get, because uh, I want to talk more about going underground. Uh, and before I do, I, I want to um, get into this interview you did uh, with uh, Rafael Correa. You did two interviews. We're going to play the one in English uh, here. It, it was, I had no idea that he spoke English. And uh, I don't I, this is just a few years back. Uh, when he, when Assange was betrayed by uh, Lyndon Moreno. Tell us what you felt when you heard on April the 11th that Lenin Moreno, your former vice president, now president, had invited UK police into Ecuador's London embassy. I was horrified. I, I knew Julian, Julian Assange was condemned uh, a long time ago because uh, Moreno tried to negotiate with him one week after taking office. You know, he received the visit of Paul Manafort, the former uh, campaign chief of Trump, now in jail in the United States because of corruption. And he offered to Manafort and to the American government to, to deliver uh, Julian Assange, but if the American government can support him financially. 
So we knew that uh, Julian Assange was condemned, but we never imagined that uh, will be so brutal. For instance, allowing British police to enter in our embassy, that is against the Vienna Convention. And that is against international law, the Inter-American Human Rights Convention, the Julian Assange human rights, and overall, especially, that is against the institution of asylum, because the, the most important part of the asylum is to protect the refugee from people pursuing him, not to deliver the, the refugee. And that is exactly what the government of Moreno has, uh, Moreno's government has done, and that is against also uh, our constitution, Article 41. Expressly, this article says that is the the country cannot deliver a refugee, a person that uh, has been granted our asylum. Okay, that's former Ecuadorian President uh, Rafael Correa, who you've had on the show at least two times. I've seen two interviews. And um, what uh, seems to be a pretty good guy. And um, uh, they've tried to, uh, you know, smear him. And they've tried to bring him in on charges. I would say Lyndon Moreno is one of the most corrupt leaders. And he's a throwback to the Banana Republic era of uh, Trujillo, uh, Somoza. Uh, Although, of course, he was promoted by Correa, it has to be said. I know Rafael Correa regrets it now, but he was promoted by him in his administration. Well, how did he hoodwink like that? He's no Fidel Castro, Rafael Correa. He's literally a liberal social democrat who's just obviously didn't realize who Moreno was. Right. Well, he, he, he did enact a lot of reforms, and he did kick out uh, certain... Uh, That's elements. true, yeah. True. Uh, and although uh, Native American, Native Ecuadorians never uh, were able to realize money that was owed to them by, I believe, Exxon or Chevron, uh, and they're definitely free today to do what they want, those companies, under uh, Lenin Moreno. What do you make of Lenin Moreno selling out, which he so clearly says uh, in that interview you did with him? Yeah, he's... Uh... I mean, he's been in a tough position, career because he himself, as you say, was being smeared, um, horrific uh, things. I mean, he himself, uh, when uh, Sanchez was, uh, had, uh, had uh, asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy, Correa started to say, hang on, you're not allowed to produce this kind of thing and that kind of thing. That's how even-handed Correa was. That's what I meant by saying he's not... Uh, you know, an hour, he didn't go into this to become an enemy of Washington, D.C. I guess you could, I could say that about Fidel Castro, come to think of it. Right. Um, Lenin Moreno, um, yeah, I mean, you know, what are you going to say about the foreign policies, the home policies, the economic policies, the health privatization policies in, uh, in Colombia, in modern-day uh, uh, modern quasi-proxy countries in the Western Hemisphere, or in Africa, or in Southeast Asia. Uh, they've got someone there who can do what Washington tells them. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really uh, uh, reprehensible, uh, his history uh, with Assange. I mean, it didn't last long. I mean, he comes in 2017. When I was there, uh, 
it was the onset of the uh, of UC Global's intense scrutiny and uh, intense uh, surveillance of U.S. citizens and journalists and um, the most scary instance of lawyers. Uh, what did you make of that? Have you done shows on, uh, you have done shows on UC? I mean, we were both in that embassy, so obviously we have personal interest in it. I've seen the pictures of you in it, and we had Jeffrey Robertson QC, Queen's Counselor, one of the top human rights barristers in the world. He's defended some of the most amazing cases. And I mean, when you look at surveillance, I mean, what must he think? I mean, he's told me what he, he just, to see footage of uh, lawyer-client relationships being bugged by the Ecuadorian government on the at the first instance, then in Moreno's government, but then in the second instance, and the case is continuing, I understand, in Spain, about the CIA links to that company. I mean, what is this for human rights? And, and Jeffrey Robertson prosecutes cases in the International Criminal Court. I mean, he hasn't come across this kind of surveillance himself, uh, let alone you being on camera. I somehow escaped it, notice. I don't know. I think uh, if you were there in 2017, I, I so I, far I, anyway. I didn't do anything I, wrong. I'm telling you. I, I told Ator Martinez, uh, one of the lawyers uh, in Spain involved in that case, that you were on today, and he said to say hello. And uh, he he's seen all the footage. I've seen he's seen all the footage. There's a he's lot out there. Have, there must be hours of this oh. illegally taken footage in violation of any norms of the United Nations Charter. You, he's seen all of it. You have. It's only the tip of the iceberg what you've seen. Uh, and he says there's a lot more uh, out there that people have not seen. So um, I don't know. I went in there and I was told, hey, look, when you check into your hotel room, which was at the Z, he says, when you get into the room, come back down and say you don't like the room, all right? Because it reminds, reminds you of some very traumatic experience when you were a kid. And then they give you another room, and then you come right back down. So I don't like that one either. So you got to do it three times uh, to avoid debugging. But I said, that's complete paranoia. And lo and behold, you got footage of me bringing a bottle of bullet that anonymous Scandinavia told me to give to Julian Assange, and I ended up drinking half of it uh, when I was there. Uh, yeah, all they're so, gonna get, hopefully, rather than any conspiracy with Moscow or Beijing or whatever, uh, that Virginia court that uh, grand jury wants to uh, argue for the incarceration of Julian Assange for 175 years, is uh, a variety of different bar drinks and immense, interesting geopolitical conversation that is a benefit to billions of people around the world that uh, the misdemeanors of their governments. Absolutely. Uh, once again, we are talking with Avshin Kanzi of Going Underground and formerly of, formerly of uh, Channel 4. You did a show, you were a producer for Tariq Ali, I believe? That was a long time ago. Yeah. That's well, <laughs> All right, that was that was in. It was Eric who got me into TV because I wanted to write novels. Yeah, that, we talked a bit about that before. But yeah, it was great to have Tarek on again. And uh, yeah, that that obviously was a great influence on me. And I mentioned Indonesia and the Million Dead and the CIA back coup against uh, uh, Sukarno to install Suharto. His that program on Channel Four was 
called Bandung File, named after the Bandung Conference, the Non-Aligned Movement Conference. And it's noticeable that these days you would never have a primetime television program on British television, supposed public service television. They're treated differently by regulators, uh, arguably censors here in this country. And I suppose in the United States on network TV, you'd never have a program on the United States' role in the world in prime time. Well, that's exactly what Oliver Stone said. He said uh, that uh, RT, which is basically censored in this country, I have to go online to get it, uh, used to be on like four or five different, uh, you know, cable providers. Uh, and it got to put some kind of disclaimer on when it's on you. It's outrageous. Uh, when you have the BBC, as he said, we need to have uh, RT, we need to have Al Jazeera, and uh, somehow they are trying to neutralize those outlets. I mean, your show, which I just love, it's on three days a week, uh, and do you get a lot of uh, heat uh, from the government officials uh, yeah, in the UK for... We have done, and I got to say, it does work, this kind of idea. Most people are working so hard to feed their families or whatever on their daily jobs. If they're going to see a strapline saying, this is Moscow propaganda, or this is funded or partly by the Russian government, this is there, to, or the Qatari government or whatever, this is there to show U.S. Uh, press freedom is not about letting a million flowers bloom. It is about saying, hey, watch out for this. This doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah, right. we, get, uh, we get heat. And uh, I should say, um, you know, when uh, we were really under heat, uh, and I, I gave quite a few interviews for mainstream media, I explained to them that this was politicized censorship, not, uh, not ideas of regulation under some kind of... Uh, imaginary code of ethics a code that they always seem to invent which i presume is the reasons why cable operators took it off there because technically i always used to say unlike britain the u.s has a constitution and you can't ban tv stations you can't ban radio stations in the united states you can't hear you can well i i yeah, yeah you can ban them here they banned the iranian tv station press tv which i used to work for which still today provides amazing uh, footage from Gaza that you won't get elsewhere because they may have people on the ground there or news say from Iran where apparently uh, so the Iranian government has it there have been Israeli attacks in the streets where are you going to get the people on the ground apart from press tv well press tv is banned in Britain well I got to tell you something I, I like how, how, do, how do people access that that uh, Iranian news uh, network I think they have some YouTube channels but they kept being taken down because the next stages of this, of course, are the big uh, internet monopoly tech companies, arguably subsidized by the U.S. taxpayer for decades, uh, as their power of concentration of, uh, uh, of power at its closest to Washington. Another Assange uh, thing that he told me when he was talking about Google in, in the amazing book WikiLeaks and Google, uh, if, if we start to get shut down on YouTube, on Twitter, the shadow banning is being talked about. You know, it's out there somewhere, hopefully. Am I a conspiracy guy? Is it, is, is, is it like paranoia? Or am I a conspiracy freak to think that many of us are being shadow banned? 
Everyone is saying sudden view numbers have gone, view numbers have gone down in Google search engines. You can look at this anecdotally because how do we have the power to investigate whether shadow banning is actually occurring unless we get access to these arguable public services which are in the hands of a few monopoly corporations that have untold billions to lobby on K Street in Washington and uh, over here in, in London, uh, the powerful or in the European Union. I mean, uh, how can we prove it? We need another leaker to leak to WikiLeaks from inside right. these corporations. Well, that, that, that's a good point. Uh, but people are, uh, people who do leak uh, are probably that do have files, that do have information, are not going to give it to WikiLeaks. Uh, looking at the example of Julian Assange, I think that they may be fearful right now. Uh, can WikiLeaks do it without Assange? I guess they could, but I think that the example, the persecution of Assange, may scare uh, certain whistleblowers off. What is your opinion on that? I mean, that has been the accusation as to why why the why he could be tortured according to the UN. Make an example out of him. They want their hands on Edward Snowden for revealing mass surveillance of all our telephones, uh, all our uh, technical equipment in all our homes. Seems to have been forgotten, the Edward Snowden story. He's taken asylum to Moscow, wandered off. I have to say he hasn't been on my show. I don't know whether he thinks he can return to the United States. He revealed to us amazing secrets. There'll always be a way, thanks to the internet, no matter how uh, the global power of uh, these corporations are. You know, who are we to say it? But if you have those secrets, you know, upload them onto a torrent, onto that, onto that Tor browsing uh, torrent anonymously. Maybe that's, that's how you do it. But I think, as you know, Randy, if the big uh, auditing firms or accountancy firms are really running the world, how is it so few of these companies with so many employees leak to journalists? I've been trying at going underground from the beginning to get stuff from those firms which are hired out, those big financial consultancy firms that are worshipped as gods. Yeah. Right. How airtight are these organizations that we don't get the leaks? I don't know. Or, or how fearful are their employees? They gotta be fearful. They definitely have to be fearful. Um, and, uh, but people should, uh, they have something to leak. They should go to going underground. Uh, and it's 890 shows at this point, 890. Yeah, we just hit 900 with Werner Herzog. Okay. So I was 10 off. Band. Okay. Said right. that. Look, Katharina, if she's watching this, she'll know. Yeah. It was definitely nine, 900 with Werner Herzog. Um, yeah. And of course we welcome any stories as long as uh, our sources are sure that they're not endangering their own safety when they give us the information. We will protect their anonymity, but of course, it's something WikiLeaks pioneered, the ability of sources to be able to give information that we, for instance, could disseminate to hundreds of millions of people on our show going underground. But uh, first, uh, the first priority is to keep that whistleblower safe. You, uh, going underground's got this great formula. First of all, I like the cold opening. I like the, the music up front and all that, which changed. Because I looked at it from like six years ago, you had a different uh, cold opening um, and a different music. Uh, so what, what, 
the formula, how did you find that formula? I mean, how many people work on that show? It's a fast paced show. You're always standing up. Occasionally you sit down, but you're standing up. It's, it's got this certain verb to it that uh, is unique. And uh, I don't know. Uh, who, that's, that's all down to me. Nothing to do with the team. Nothing to do with the editor, Colette Valentine. No, of course, it is completely the team. And we started in a car park because the studio hadn't been built. And uh, it is completely this team effort. And these kinds of ideas come from Colette Valentine, who worked with the most mainstream things you can imagine with uh, uh, Elton John, with, um, I don't know, she should be able to tell you, David Attenborough. Um, she comes from a high pedigree, top-notch, mass circulation TV media, and she brings that edgy style plus that professionalism, plus, of course, the, the young team together for it. It really moves. It's like... It's I have so no idea. I just want a chair, and I haven't got a chair. <laughs> no, I got to tell you, it, it, it moves so quickly. Uh, I've said that before. It's like, boom. It's, you know, 30 minutes goes by like that, but you, I know there's a lot of work that goes into it and you got a good team and uh, the, uh, the graphics are good and the, uh, the screen looks great. And it's just a very unique way. And I, and I, uh, presenting something uh, that's both entertaining and educational and it's current and it's compelling. So you've got all of those elements going uh, to keep people's attention because we do live in a period of a, of a very short attention span. And uh, you, know, you, keep, you keep people riveted all the way through. And I give you and your team a lot Thank of credit. You. And people should go to Going on Underground. They can find it online. Just look at, you got a library of 900 yeah. shows. Yeah, right? exactly. 900 shows, all those different clips. And it's not just, because the most recently, we were talking about shadow banning. We got hundreds of thousands watching our Epstein interview in the... Uh, allegations about Israeli uh, uh, links to the Epstein story. Of course, that suddenly bumps up massively, and then you hope that bumps up some of the other... I mean, of course, that's a terrible, serious story, what's happening about the Epstein story and Ghislaine Maxwell, but there are other stories. Let's no, I know, but it's, it, it, it definitely gets out there, uh, the Epstein. I haven't done one on Epstein. I, I, I can't somehow figure out how to bring it into the Assange show. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't. Well, it's interesting. I, it's another example of a story where you need that whistleblower, and it's very difficult. I mean, the, we, we have them on. People can watch our interviews. Uh, we, well, we've just done one, I suppose. Uh, the mainstream media are doing interviews with who knows who, friend of this, friend of that, um, because they know it has ratings. But you're right. right. You've got to select someone, and of course, Given the high stakes here, alleged stakes, how are you going to get someone from deep inside the alleged conspiracy, if it indeed is a conspiracy, to show what really happened to Epstein? I'd like to know. I mean, it just when it, that prison, there's no way uh, buying the idea that he committed suicide. Just Prince Andrew, I suppose, would be uh, the one to talk to because in this country, he's become the fall guy, as if it's all his fault. Right. We know there's tons of people out there that certainly do not want their names leaked. And, uh, you know, this, this would like destroy a lot of lives. 
and careers and businesses. And has done, according to the survivors of the uh, sexual trafficking, of course. Well, we know the victims, not the victims. I'm talking about those who were the participants, the Johns, as it were, in, in uh, Epstein's uh, world, uh, who, you know, wherever that black book is and the names and, and who participated, we don't know. And uh, I'm not going to speculate. Well, we have the black book. We just don't have any proof of any connections between the names in the black book. Well, that's uh, what I mean. Getting, getting, getting right. co concrete uh, info. Um, listen, this has been a and they all and they all deny wrongdoing. <laughs> every single one of them, Alan Dershowitz. That's the biggest thing about our show. Uh, the biggest thing is the continuous legal vetting and the continuous legal quandaries. The need to all the time. Uh, be able to communicate to our viewers what's happening despite the immense power that uh, those in power have against you, as you know. I, and I got to tell you just very quickly, uh, one story Cy tells right at the beginning, whatever you do, don't do consumer journalism, because while that is the most useful, the most uh, enlightening, you can't hit massive consumer company organizations because they have fantastic lawyers. It's as easier to attack governments because government bureaucracies don't have those private lawyers to hit at you. Shame, right. a it's big true. shame. That's true. I mean, you take a look at, uh, at Exxon and Chevron or Texco, whoever did. Had Both great employers of people who care about the environment, Randy. That's what they are. Right. And then, and then you have, um, you have uh, what uh, we talked about earlier uh, with uh, Julian Assange and the, um, the, uh, all of the things that uh, were in Cablegate and some, and, and then Ralph Nader, all right? And we have Ralph Nader, he, he had all sorts of uh, legal problems uh, trying to get consumer uh, change in this country. He did the hardest thing, arguably. Huh? He did the, Ralph Nader did the hardest thing, arguably. Right, right, right. You know, he did the hardest thing, but he, he kept going. He was like Sisyphus, but he got over the hill with the rock and got, as you have said, Ralph Nader arguably has saved more lives than anyone in the history of mankind and i.e. seatbelts. Yeah, and, and, but what a fight that was. But it does show that people can fight corporate power and that uh, given the right circumstances, what seems impossible and Sisyphean, uh, the, the ball can go, uh, uh, is it up the hill or down the hill? It can it, move. Usually it goes down move. the hill and yeah. <laughs> Doesn't go on the other side of the hill. <laughs> exactly. Down the hill. And, exactly. So the point is, you can win and it does happen. And, that, and Nader, I guess, is an example of that. He's certainly, he is, uh, you know, it's, it's like people that go to Hollywood to become a star. You know, you get a lot of uh, people that go out there and work as waiters, waitresses to become a star. One out of a million make it, you know what I mean? But that inspires a lot of others to keep going out there. I guess Nader has inspired a lot of people too, as you said, uh, go after, uh, do, do shows on behalf of the consumer. Uh, it's, it's not an easy road to hope. Uh, Afshin, um, I, I appreciate all the work that you've done. I, and this is really, as far as I'm concerned, this is one of a two-part, because I have so much to, a to ask you, but I know we're like way into this, and it's going to be a 90-minute show. 
so especially when uh, the videos that you just saw, right? And uh, so we're going to uh, close out here. Before, just some last words. Uh, give us an epilogue on Julian Assange uh, as it comes up in, uh, in September. Just any closing thoughts? I think right now everyone is, uh, who has been following the story is incredibly worried for his life, whether Assange is actually just going to become a martyr uh, to the cause of uh, freedom, freedom of the press, and uh, revealing the secrets of power. What's noticeable is the relative silence of those media organizations that have benefited so much from his work. Arguably, they'd have gone bust without Julian Assange's work. So I think what's awful right now is worrying about whether he's going to be alive or not and uh, worrying about why the media continues not to be covering this story every day with a countdown like, uh, like liberation papers in South Africa were doing while Mandela was in prison after Rivonia. This is what needs to be done. It won't be done. And alas... Who knows, there are even forces in WikiLeaks itself that seem to be kowtowing to uh, organizations like The Guardian, The New York Times, exactly the organizations that Niels Meltzer, the UN rapporteur, appear to be arguing were a source of psychological torture for the most famous publisher in the world. Uh, this is an example where there must be no, uh, there's no gray area here you're either for Assange or you're against him. And the mealy-mouthed words that came out very briefly during the court appearances from the New York Times and The Guardian, which uh, did deals with WikiLeaks, that's not good enough. Uh, you're either for him or you're against him, and there is no in-between. Circle the wagons rather than the firing squad, is what I would uh, say. And that, thank you, those were, uh, it's a great, uh, uh, cap to this uh, incredible uh, hour plus interview and, and uh, you're very generous and uh, I hope to see you in, in, in September. We're gonna, <laughs> it's September, right? If I can get in, I got a feeling they're not gonna let U.S. citizens. U.S. Live. citizens are banned from this country. Britain is yeah. not gonna let you people in. You've done <laughs> enough damage, haven't you, Randy? Yeah, well, India should say the same thing about the UK. No citizen. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think the US did tit for tat. We're not allowed there either. No. Or Egypt, or anywhere around the world where the Brits uh, planted their uh, Union Jack uh, for the last four hundred years, going way back to the East Indian Company. Uh, all right. So in Bengal, you know what they did there. Well, that's a whole nother show. We're going to talk about the crimes next time I get you on the 400 year history of uh, uh, the British Empire. And uh, I gotta go see my buddy, Craig Murray, by the way. I'd like to go to that trial, but I can't get into Scotland either, right? You can't travel. No traveling. No traveling, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in Coronaville. Stay All safe. Right. Stay safe, that's the important thing. Right, we're gonna go out here. You like Sam Cooke, right? Who doesn't? All right, we're gonna- Magic life, arguably. Huh? Tragic life. It's yes, somewhere. tragic life, but uh, this is perfect. This is a uh, chain gang. Uh, we're going to play a little uh, pastiche from uh, Working on the Chain Gang by Sam Cooke. He could have been more political. <laughs> <laughs>
all right, listen, I can play something else. Just throw it out. It doesn't matter. No, no, no. Of course, I love Sam Cooke. Right. Go ahead. Can, all right. <laughs> I, I could play Vera Lynn if you'd prefer. No, Sam Cooke's better. All right, we're going to go out with Sam Cooke. We only play Vera Lynn uh, when John Pilger's on. All right? That's his. All right, thanks a lot. Uh, See you, Randy. Andy, we'll talk to you soon. And uh, we'll be right back uh, with some closing thoughts. <laughs> I hear something saying Well, don't you know That's the sound of the men Working on the chain Gang That's the sound of the men Working on the chain Gang, all day long they're saying, Ooh. Ah. Ooh. Ah. Ooh. Ah. Ooh. Ah. Well, don't you know that's the sound of the men working on the chain? Yeah. Sam Cook, Chain Gang. I hope you enjoyed that interview with. Uh, with uh, really one of the finest journalists around and most interesting show, Going Underground. That's Afshin Ratanzi. Uh, I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico, live on the fly, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. This is our 33rd show. Um, we, uh, I'm gonna ask you, you know, we can, we have expenses here and I'm planning to go to uh, London. Uh, so um, I don't like the panhandle. I am the worst panhandler. A lot of people uh, are able to make money. You know what I mean? Uh, we're not looking to make money. We're just looking to pay uh, our expenses here. Like I, I had to get into a sound studio-like atmosphere here. So I got a hotel room to do this, you know? And I got me and the dog here and, you know, she's got some appetite. So <laughs> uh, go to Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, dot com and uh, there's uh, you know a support uh, button there and you know minimal amounts will help but uh, we'd like to continue doing this particularly as we are now uh, going into the home stretch uh, of this uh, hearing and uh, we'd like to do this as much as possible it's really important that the information gets out there and you get people to support Julian when they know the real story they'll come back. And uh, some of these journalists and some of these people who have such a, a negative uh, view of him, we've got to get to those people. And uh, I just can't condemn them. I, I, we want to get to them. We need them. So support us. And um, that's just about it. Julian Assange uh, and Afshin, all the guests that I've had, one thing they have in common, they hate war and they love children and they love civilians. And so uh, with that being said, we're gonna go out here. Uh, this is um, uh, Pavarotti, uh, Pavarotti uh, leading the uh, Cambodian and uh, Tibetan Children's Choir. Uh, and the music is from uh, Nobuku, and the name of the aria is uh, Pensero, and um, you're gonna love this. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye, everybody.